So how to propose in the culture, as it's been described in a way by all of us speakers, um, how is it possible to propose persuasively the alternative in an atmosphere that is sometimes intensely hostile against Christianity, against the faith. And just a few points to begin with, and then let's spend the time discussing. Um, Sometimes it seems as if in our culture we were interested mainly in the protection of our rights, mainly in our personal independence, but that's a surface impression. There is a deeper human desire which is the desire for happiness. And I think to be aware of that is very helpful because that is what, in discussions with others, we can tap into if we do it in the right way. What is it that can make people aware of that desire for happiness. It's goodness when it comes to appear in its beauty. I think that's the path. Simply to say something is good isn't enough. A person has to get a taste of it, appreciate it, and beauty seems to be the way in which what's good, when it appears, makes itself known persuasively. What I was going to do, but we, if, if you want to, I can do part of that, but we have half an hour, is um, I think one of the most important things in the theology of the body is the question he raises, how we educate ourselves, not only ourselves, but then also the people around us, in this theology of the body. And he draws a contrast between pornography and genuine beauty. And so I was going to have some slides about that, but we can talk about it in general terms. The, of course, the picture of Mary assumed into heaven, there Titian was very careful not to eroticize the picture the image 
at all. She's intensely feminine, but not in any pronounced way erotic. Um, as John Paul in the Fellowship only talks about, especially Greek art, uh, Greek statues, but also the Renaissance as a period in which pieces of art were produced that can lead to purity because they show a fuller beauty. And that depends on his account of misguided love. What is misguided erotic love between man and woman? or concupiscence, as he also calls it, it is reduced love. Reduced in that not all the beauty of the person is allowed to emerge and to strike, but only a certain layer, as if you walked into a room with green glasses. With, with green glasses, a red shirt would look black, well, with blue glasses at any rate it would, with green there may be something coming through, maybe a little bit of yellow or something like that. And pornography as a way of portraying the human body seems to work on a similar principle that it isolates one layer of the beauty and attractiveness of a person. while excluding much else, which then has this particular effect on men that it has. It's like a laser that burns into a man. So beauty in the various areas seems, seems to me an absolutely essential way for proposing, for making a persuasive case. It goes from dressing to, I mean, beauty touches so many areas of human life. It's not just in art, although that's a good point of departure because there you see it particularly clearly and what the options are. So I'll stop with that and uh, let's spend the rest of the time talking about these questions. You're so far away. Come, come a bit closer. Can you still see with, with the camera? Good. Yeah. Uh, so, would you uh, would you say it'd be important to uh, have an increase in uh, good uh, sacred art um, in Catholic circles and right. in general? Right. We 
live in a culture which despised beauty. The Puritans thought it was impure to love beauty. So among other things, they abolished Christmas with all the Christmas songs and, and so on and didn't cultivate art. Since then, the culture has somewhat changed, but we are here catching up. There's a lot of what people call kitsch, that is excessively sweet religious art, which isn't really beautiful. So to make a conscious effort to school one's own perception, and if one has a teaching role of some kind, to help others to see beauty. And it was lucky for me, I grew up in Salzburg in Austria, and um, there, although there are many people, and it became increasingly the case, who hate beauty and who cultivate ugliness. Um, Lucian Freud, for example, who is one of the most important painters in, he emigrated from Germany to his great-grandson of Sigmund Freud and became one of the most prominent painters in England. There's a very conscious cultivation of ugliness. Nevertheless, in many places in Europe, there still is a love for beauty. Beauty is all around. Whereas cities founded after World War I, after World War II, built mainly in that period, often are just unbelievably ugly. I remember the first time I came to the US and saw Los Angeles, I thought, is this possible? Can, why do people produce something like this? So we, as Americans, and I've been an American citizen from birth, even though born in Austria and raised there, we Americans need to work on it. And in every area, clothing, for example, um, I know it's hard because the usual thing is to conform oneself to the way most people get, uh, yeah, most people wear clothes. When I was, I, I taught for eight years at Notre Dame, and a woman who would wear a skirt would be laughed at and in other ways punished for, so it's, it's, it's not easy. Please. I think one major obstacle is uh, a relativistic hermeneutic that we could address beauty. We should discern, uh, I've come across people who it's very, well, that doesn't appeal to me. I don't think that's beautiful. Maybe you do, but it, there's no way to prove that it is beautiful. There isn't. 
and that's true, and somebody's taste can be really bent out of shape. And nevertheless, the, 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 the painting that I used today, did you think it was beautiful? Yes. And that the beauty of it grew on you as you sort of saw aspects of it that aren't immediately obvious. Uh, if you can get somebody to spend time to let the power of beauty work, then, but of course you can't impose it. That's, that's absolutely true. To get good goose, goose livers, big goose livers, they used to f force feed geese. Take them between their legs and then with a big pot of, it would stuff down the uh, food into their stomach so that the liver would grow excessively. With beauty, that doesn't work. You can get good goose livers, but not uh, a heart that's pliable to beauty. Dostoevsky, among authors, is one who particularly was convinced of that path, that beauty was absolutely essential. Have you ever read uh, things by Roger Scruton? He's a philosopher who has written about aesthetics and fantastically insightful, the importance of beauty today is, is worth looking into. He gave a talk last year. Oh, did he? Yes, he did. Yeah. About what? The human face? About beauty? Yes. Yeah. yeah so you, anybody else hear him? Yes, you heard him too. He's great, he, and he has a way of, a sort of non-confrontational way of getting points across that many people find appealing. Confrontation usually doesn't, it's not worth being angry and yelling at one another. Maybe occasionally, if somebody, you need to pull up somebody short with anger, it helps very occasionally. Yeah. 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 
he was great. I started really listening to classical music after I listened to his talk. Great. That's right. Um, Beethoven's fifth. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're used to pop music, it takes a while to enter the language of classical music because it imposes itself less uh, than... And I remember when I started out at ITI, I had a friend uh, who was the the dean, my closest friend, who very much loved the music of the 16th century in 16th and 17th centuries, so the 1500s, 1600s in Venice. There was a great flowering of music in Venice, Monteverdi especially. And it took me about a year of intensive listening until I really picked up the the language of that music. It's, it is a bit like learning a foreign language when you enter a different period of music or go from pop to classical. In this case, Baroque, early Baroque. That's early Baroque. One marvelous phenomenon in Bolivia. There's a Polish priest, musicologist, who discovered that in many small villages in Bolivia, dating back to the Jesuit settlements, if you've ever seen the movie The Mission, you know, the, the Jesuit settlements were eliminated by force in the interests of power of various kind. And the old women in those villages kept the music which the Indios and also the Spanish, the Jesuits themselves, who were there, composed. And the priest went around from village to village, gaining the trust of the old women in the village and they no longer knew what it meant. And an English group, very, very good group, uh, called Florilegium, put out a performance of some of that music, and it led to a huge renaissance in Bolivia of Baroque music, of their own Baroque music, which is now coming out. Um, that Polish priest collected the stuff. It, it's like the dry bones in Ezekiel. Remember the dry bones in the plain? And God says, dry bones, get up. And they get up. And clothe themselves with, with flesh. So these sheets, these old sheets of paper kept by the women without any knowledge of what they were about, are now a source of new life. It's beautiful. If you ever run across it, there are uh, Bolivian Baroque is the name of the 
they put out three CDs altogether. But now in Bolivia, there's a, there are regular festivals where that music is performed. So it's possible for new life to spring from old bones. One shouldn't give up. Sure. Right. It it depends on on the person. Dialogue may be a waste of time. Um, If there isn't some minimal openness, then it really may waste your time. If there is, then the single most important condition for dialogue is communicating to the other person what is an objective fact, namely the solidarity between the two of you in humanity, that you're both human beings, that both of you are in search of happiness, if you can tap into that, that abstract ideas like progress, you know, we're in the 21st century, do you want to go back to the Middle Ages? Well, time is really not of the essence. Is it good or not? That's what's interesting. Um, but there are, I, th- I think Dr. Savage was totally right. You have to be aware that you are not dealing only with human errors, but with principalities and powers. So more is going on than meets the eye. So to pray for people you have dialogue with may be, in some circumstances, much more important. And not to be overly optimistic, that also helps, about dialogue in the sense of conversation, that what changes people's heart is rarely, although sometimes it happens, a good argument. But unless they want to follow a good argument, there are all kinds of ways of resisting one inwardly and writing it off. 
So. Um, when you first actually talked about um, the fact that we are all moderns, in reference right. to Francis, and you talked about Al-Jassani um, and engagement with reality, right, and an opaqueness in a conservative mindset in terms of engagement with others. Yeah. And it's so strange how many who consider themselves conservative Catholics in the United States follow the dominant culture, which is mainly interested in seeing a powerful institution like the Catholic Church finally come around to more freedom-loving ideas about how to conduct one's own human life. And so many people who defend the Catholic Church, instead of talking about the gospel, being in love with the gospel, they watch with very sharp eyes. Are the bishops, is the pope going to talk straight about moral norms as if everything depended on that? The gospel is not primarily the proclamation of the law, but of the fact of redemption, of the gift God made of himself, which is so infinitely more interesting than, than being right on this or that moral principle. Not that it's unimportant to be right on moral principles, but certainly not the main thing. But if you look at the blogs on Pope Benedict that come from conservative Catholics, very often, well, here he is ambiguous and there is ambiguous about this and this moral problem. But my goodness, he's not at all ambiguous about the mercy of God and about what that mercy of God cost God, that is, God gave his only son. That's of infinitely greater weight than, and also of infinitely greater beauty. That's what the Gospel of John calls glory, that God loves us to that degree. Glory being very close to beauty in, um, character and nature. Um, cutting back to his question, I'm sort of question. In our culture today, with understanding of love so different from, um, I would say, a Catholic view of love, and, and you, you said that arguments rarely change people, how do we confront a culture in which we're not, not supposed to just go around and argue with people. How do we go out into the world and show others what's right? And Love them genuinely. That's, that's the one Christian commandment, and that holds now as it always did. So 
really willing their good and in relation to them being able to venture yourself to the degree of suffering for them, that can, and sometimes it doesn't, but it can touch people and they may begin wondering what's Why are you relating to me in this way? 